Hallowed Ground Storycast. I'm Anya. And I'm Alan. And this episode is about the movie that taught me every story needs to be told twice in order to be told once. The Mexican. You know, you're very sensitive for a cold-blooded killer. So before we get started, I just wanted to say hello to everyone and apologies that it's been a long time since we've put out an episode. Um, we've been recording a lot for our other show, Measures of Truth, about um, his dark materials, uh, the book trilogy, and the TV show. Um, so we put out like 14 episodes of that in the span of, what, like four months or something? Mm, <laughs> so yeah. um, we just like... So we just haven't had a lot of spare time um, to work on this. It kind of got put to the back burner. Um, but we'll talk more at the end about our plans um, for going forward. Um, but back to the Mexican. All right. So the plot of the Mexican is that uh, Jerry, the main character, is a guy who accidentally ended up as a low-level errand boy for a mobster after causing the car accident that put the mobster in jail. Jerry's final job is to go to Mexico and pick up a valuable antique gun and smuggle it back to the United States. His girlfriend, Samantha, is pissed Jerry took the job instead of going with her to Las Vegas like they had planned, and she breaks up with him. After things start to go south, the mobsters send someone to find Samantha and hold her hostage until the gun is retrieved. Shenanigans ensue on both sides of the border, and we learn several versions of the tragic backstory and mythology of the gun involving two young Mexican lovers. Inspired by the gun and their adventures, Jerry and Samantha's love for each other is reawakened, and they decide to get back together and get engaged. So The Mexican was a 2001 comedy. Uh, It was directed by Gore Verbinski. It stars Brad Pitt, Julia Roberts, James Gandolfini, and Gene Hackman, among many other supporting people who are fabulous. Like every actor in this is gold. It's a weird ass movie. I completely Um, agree. (laughs) The script was originally intended to be an independent production without major stars, uh, but Roberts and Pitt had been looking for a project they could do together Um, And they decided to make it after Julia Roberts introduced the project to Brad Pitt. Uh, It had a $40 million budget and it earned $148 million worldwide. So that's pretty good. Um, Critics did not really like it. It was mixed reviews. So some were up and down. Uh, They generally liked the acting, but they thought the movie is too long. It's boring. It's pointless. Its tone is weird. That sounds about right for the shit we talk about on our show. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) It's a weird movie you've never heard of with Julia Roberts and Brad Pitt and James Gandolfini. How does this exist? Which is, and apparently a lot of people say it's like the best performance of his career. Yeah, I would agree. Like, I love The Sopranos and I think, but I think this character is amazing. Yeah. I mean, I've never seen The Sopranos, but I agree about this character. So what was your first experience with this movie? Uh, I don't even know. I I couldn't tell you. I'm pretty sure that I didn't. I did not see this in the theater. Um, I'm pretty sure that I saw it probably on Netflix or something like that. Back when Netflix was like, I got a DVD in the mail kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. Um, Or maybe I rented it. I'm not sure. Maybe I saw it with somebody else. Uh, 
I, man, I couldn't tell you. This is not like a deep down super favorite movie for me. I've kind of said it in the beginning. This was like part of a time in my life when I was trying to figure out how storytelling works. And this movie like taught me one of my uh, fundamental ideas of storytelling. I call it the rule of two because uh, I'm a Star Wars nerd. Um, but it's the idea that you need to tell your story twice in order to tell it once, which is not like a hard and fast rule, but is um, something that I observed in a lot of stories where if you watch a movie and you're like, what happened? Part of the reason why you might feel that way is because the plot was very straightforward and it never kind of echoed itself at all. Um, But if you get a story that echoes itself, several times at least once it's easier to digest the main story for some reason like your brain starts picking up on these patterns and like making connections or at least for me and then by the end of it you're like yes i could tell you everything that happened and you know plot a course of the plot Uh, but when you only tell your story once that's harder to do so what do you mean by tell your story twice in like specifically with regard to this movie. So the easiest thing that you can see in this movie is um, the mythical kind of black and white old film style story of the actual gun, which is the titular gun, the Mexican. Mm -hmm. And that story, you know, like has its own specific music and it has this like um, you can hear the crank of the camera and the film grain is different and it's black and white it's a silent movie that's being narrated by whatever character within the frame of the actual story and that story is like a love story where uh, the gun is cursed the relationship is doomed you know right from the beginning and that parallels jerry and samantha being doomed right from the beginning this gun is what's causing the problems between them because he has to go get Mm -hmm. this thing he has an obligation to this very powerful man the way that the father has gotten into this obligation with a nobleman that he has kind of sold his daughter to but he's done it for her own good and in a way jerry is doing this for like the good of his relationship so that he does this one last job to get out of this, you know, situation that he's gotten himself into with this mobster. And so there's like lots of parallels between this backstory of the gun and the backstory of Jerry and Samantha, but also Jerry's uh, story and Samantha's story are also parallel to each other and have lots of resonance with each other. They, They both hook up with Uh, gangsters who are not who they appear to be and who like Mm -hmm. have all kinds of ulterior motives and independent, you know, uh, goals that have nothing to do with them, but they pretend to be their friend or maybe they actually are their friend. And, you know, so that kind of plays off of each other. And so because all of that stuff is like resonating with each other, the, the closer you get to the end, I think, the easier the story gets. You're like, ooh, yeah, okay, all right, all right, I'm with you, story. Uh, but at the beginning, it's like, what is going on? Like, this feels like we're not in gear right away. I Yeah, that completely describes my experience watching this movie. 
I felt really confused and impatient for the first half hour or so. Uh, and then I like really settled into it. Um, and once I figured out what it was doing, I actually really enjoyed like the last three quarters of it or so. Yeah. Yeah, I thought it's like a fun mix of genres um, and tones that like kind of reminds me a little bit of Buffy and anything that reminds me a little bit of Buffy is nice. It's kind of funny that the critic, I mean, it makes sense why the critics didn't like it, but also like in some ways it's very much Hollywood producer catnip, right? It's like a story about the power of story. Like everything is about the narratives that people are telling. Like Samantha clearly has like a story about Jerry and about their relationship that she's telling herself that like doesn't really match reality. (laughs) Um, And then there's like the story about the gun that's like, there's lots of um, like secret character motivation reveals. Um, There's like a lot of fun, witty dialogue, some great visual set pieces. Like it's, it feels very much like a movie made for movie lovers. Mm -hmm. But like you say, the like pacing and the plot are kind of like weird and unconventional. It like really feels like an independent film. And I feel like maybe part of the reason why the critics didn't like it was just that the expectations were set wrong because it stars Brad Pitt and Julia Roberts. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. They both do an amazing job acting in it. But I feel like if it hadn't had them, people might have gone in and like been more accepting of an unconventional movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think this movie is like kind of like a poor man's Quentin Tarantino you know, of that time, the way that it uses music, the way that it uses violence and like the disjointed plots, the caliber of the stars that you're getting versus kind of like the subject and pacing and all of that stuff. But it doesn't have the same kind of pop as like Pulp Fiction or something like that. Mm -hmm. And the stars in terms of um, Brad Pitt and Julia Roberts both have like a little bit too much polish you know, to be that thing. It definitely has that, like, Quentin Tarantino, like, fucked up views on gender a little bit. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, what do you mean by that? Oh, just that, like, Julia Roberts does an amazing job, and I kind of, the fact that I can stand Samantha at all (laughs) is basically, like, based on her charisma. But the writing for that character annoyed me so much. That's it. That is it. You, 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 you go along. You don't want to get married to me. And this is the way that you're dealing with it. Huh? You're back to the same old selfish, self-involved, vile, disgusting oh, God, you are... self. You're missing the grand design here. If I don't go, I'm dead. Yeah. And it's a little difficult to carry on a relationship if I'm stuffed with straw and formaldehyde. Now, if anyone, anyone is being selfish. Oh, now you blame shift? Would you? You are blame shifting. You, you stop are a shifter, Ah, this is like a, a period in time where Julia Roberts was kind of like tired of the pretty woman kind of roles that she had been doing, where she was like America's sweetheart, and she started to do these things where she was like a real bitch, and she like leaned into it in a bunch of movies. Like, um, I can't think of the movie where she's like my best friend's wedding, maybe. Where she's like in love with the guy. It seems like it should be a romantic comedy. And like 20 minutes in, you're like, I fucking hate Julia Roberts. <laughs> What's going on? Well, 
she did an amazing job in Aaron Brockovich around this time. And that was like, yeah, not a romantic comedy. And she's like a bitch, but like a relatable bitch who is super competent and get things done. And is like fighting against patriarchy. Yeah. She's a cool bitch. Not like, <laughs> uh, yeah. In this movie, I feel like she's just like a bitch conforming to the patriarchy's vision of how like women are unreasonable and don't know what they want. She's like, using the language of like self-empowerment and self-actualization but like it actually makes no goddamn sense what she's saying yeah yeah it's like a cover for her vulnerability she did it's a it's a shield and she just like has no actual empathy or compassion for her partner which is like the foundation of all romantic relationships hopefully Mm -hmm. There's just something something like really obnoxious about someone being like, you never think about me. You never understand me when it's like she's not spending half a goddamn second thinking about him. <laughs> that's true. I think that uh, there is the the thing that's going on here that's interesting with gender. I, I agree that she's like poorly written and obnoxious in ways that well, OK, is not meant but to only be. in the way that. Sorry, only in the way that she relates to Jerry. Like, I love her with Leroy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the mobster bodyguard hostage taker guy. Yeah. Even that thing is weird because the, the degree to which they become friends is like Stockholm syndrome uh and weird. Um, but in a fun way. Yeah, yeah. You're right. You're right. It's not, it's not like super <laughs> problematic, but like the whole thing is, I don't know. But yeah. I do think there's like a whole thing in this movie about like masculinity Jerry as a character is not like I think of him as an what I call an omega male. Like there's alpha males, beta males, and then there's like omega males like Jerry. Wait, so what how does an omega relate to an alpha or beta? Like they would or I guess I understand it's not alpha, but how what's the difference between omega and beta? I would say like the J.K. Simmons character is more of a beta male in this movie. The guy who comes down there and is like, Boca, Boca Raton. Um, I'm just doing my piece, Jerry. Like, no, fuck. Is that what they think? That I'm selling them out? I don't know, Jerry. You know, maybe they just they think you're scared and you might do the wrong thing. You know, I don't know. I'm just doing my goddamn portion here. Yeah. and, And what is that? To find out what's going on, assess the damage. Try to calm you down, help find the pistol, get us home. I'll tell you something, I get on that plane, pistol or not, that'll be the last fucking flight I ever take. Well, come on, Jerry. Come on, Jerry, you know it. I know what I'm supposed to know. Yeah, you're just doing your fucking part. I know what I'm supposed to know. You hear yourself? You sound like fucking Schultz from Hogan's Heroes. I know nothing! Jerry, I'm not crazy about naming running things any more than you are. But I got a few years on you, and I'm telling you, the thing to do is to just keep your nose clean, look straight ahead, and do what you're told. Oh, God. You know, that's why I'm 17 months of payments away from Boca Raton, Jerry, because I do my fucking portions. I don't care how you look at it. The first step out of this is to get the pistol back. I never took a payoff in my life. Jerry, look, I know where your loyalties lie, but the kid's dead. The pistol's gone. I mean, you can see how it looks, right? He'll he'll say one thing and then do another because he doesn't, he's not that alpha male who comes in and is like, get down on your fucking knees. Give me the gun. If you don't have it, tell me where it is. You're not going to do it. Bam, bam, bam. Now I'm going to go find the fucking gun. Like that's what the alpha male would do. The beta male would come in and be like, hey, buddy, what's going on? How you doing? Where's that gun? Oh, man, that's that's a crazy situation. Let's go get it. And then while your back's turned, he shoots you. 
you know. And Omega <laughs> Male is like, oh, uh, I was supposed to get a gun. Do you, uh, you don't want to give it to me? Hey, I, I get it, man. Uh, I'm just going to go. Forget it. Like, and that's an Omega Male. <laughs> okay. For the record, I, I see myself as an Omega Male. So I uh, relate to Jerry a lot. I really like the way they build his character throughout the movie. Like... At the beginning, he seems completely incompetent. Mm -hmm. And then you realize as he goes through a bunch of trials and tribulations and has varying degrees of success, he actually is pretty creative and like can be successful when he puts his mind to things. He just like got put in a really shitty situation. Like he, he didn't have the personality type to be a mobster. So he's like a bit of a fish out of water and that explains like a lot of his bad luck and i mean the whole movie is like a fish out of water thing because there's all these like plucky american dipshits going down to mexico and making fools of themselves and that is actually one of the things that i really appreciated about this movie is that the main characters are mostly a bunch of white people running around in mexico to whatever extent they can the mexicans are actually characters and like have motivations and complex personality like they're i mean they're a little bit set dressing but they're much better set dressing than they could be i guess like they're more richly drawn characters than you might have expected yeah no i agree with i don't that, know yeah. it's like mid damning with weak praise but um like i guess <laughs> i went in expecting to be like oh this is not going to be good it's from 20 years ago and it actually you know like especially in the story about the gun you know like they don't necessarily have names because they're archetypes and it's like an old mythology but like they have agency and they're like making decisions and like you really feel for them as characters yeah yeah i think that yeah the myth is like great it's very like emotionally charged um and i love how it changes when the actual like Mexican people start to tell it like the first time it's not told by a Mexican. But then after that, every time after that, it's like told by a Mexican person. And then at the end it becomes kind of like Jerry's story and Samantha's story. Like it's, and you know, in the same way that now it's kind of a part of us as the audience, you know, what you're saying about what you said before about Samantha and how she doesn't understand Jerry. I think goes back into that whole Omega thing um, with Jerry, how like she wants him to like, why, why are you bending over backwards for these guys and you won't bend over backwards for me? And the answer is because he'll get killed and she'll get killed, but she doesn't appreciate yeah. that. Like he won't stand up to them. And I think that's what she wants, but he won't stand up to anyone because that's not who he is. And so there's like right. a kind of essential uh, lack of appreciation for who Jerry is on Samantha's part um, that makes their relationship feel off. Yeah, I don't know. It just it feels so dated and then like uh, men are from Mars, mm. women are from Venus kind of way. Totally. That's a good way to put it. I think it does other things about masculinity, too, in terms of James Gandolfini's character being like this hardcore killer mobster kidnapper um, while he's simultaneously uh, a gay man, mm-hmm. which is surprising and interesting in the movie. And he does a really good job, just like he does. I mean, this is basically what he does in The Sopranos, where he's like, I'm a tough badass, but at the same time, I'm very sensitive and have 
big emotions. Was this during The Sopranos or yeah. after or before? No, it's it's Dur- it's during it. He's definitely typecast a little bit. Although in The Sopranos, he's like the Gene Hackman character and not this like, mm-hmm. you know, bag man that he's playing here. The thing with his sexuality, like it did feel a little bit like Julia Roberts was maybe like objectifying it a little bit, but I can definitely see how being a out gay hitman around 20 years ago, like that would have been a more subversive like break of stereotypes than it would be now. Mm-hmm. And I do like the way that it brings them together and like makes her finally like start to sympathize with him. I think it definitely, I think the movie itself is definitely kind of patronizing towards him being gay. And like Mm -hmm. that comes out through Samantha. She's like, I love that you're gay or, you know, like, um, that's so cool. I'm so proud of you for this. And it's like, okay. What? That, that moment you had. One moment. Leroy, you just checked out that guy and had a moment. That was a moment. I don't know if it was a moment. Are you gay? As in happy? As in homosexual? What does my sexual orientation have to do with anything we've been talking about? Nothing. Nothing. Except something that you said back there really bugged me, and this would kind of help it make sense. Yeah? What's that? I asked if you were going to rape me, and you said not likely. You said it's so matter-of-fact, like it was just I was repulsive, and it was ludicrous of me to think that I was actually at risk of you wanting to have sex with me. Well, first of all, it's a crime of anger, not attraction. And second of all, you're not repulsive. You're very beautiful. You want me to rape you? Are you gay? You want me to rape you? You're gay. <laughs> I knew it. Oh, I so knew it. I just knew it. All right, what do you want? A medal or something? Do you want like a little trinket saying you identified a homosexual? No. Are you full throttle? <laughs> full throttle? Yeah, I guess I am. I'm not, I mean, I'm not trying to be a smart ass or anything like that. I just, I just think that this is great. (laughs) Wow, this is, this is, uh, nature. Okay. Uh, I know the kind of people in your business, okay? Yeah. And to me, it seems that, well, being gay isn't really conducive the environment oh like i should be a interior decorator that's insulting i am very good at what i do do you have a boyfriend no i don't unfortunately i seem to be unable to keep relationships together seems like everybody's having trouble keeping relationships together 
Yeah, it was like, uh... <laughs> that also felt just, like, very 2000. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the experience of watching this movie this time around was weird for me. Um, and, like, kind of, I don't know, painful? I don't know. Like, it made me grumpy and sad. Uh, and, like... Well, last... Yeah, when uh, last year we didn't put out a whole bunch of episodes because like I've like fell into this depression and like wouldn't edit our completed episodes. And then we got busy doing other stuff and uh, yeah. And it that was like part of watching this movie was, you know, like I I've talked about, it's weird. Like I feel like on some level I'm like lying to people when I'm doing these podcasts because like, when a, a long time ago, like when I talk about like I had to teach myself about story and and all of that stuff, like when I was getting ready to go to college, which was around the time this movie came out, uh, I went to college in like 98. Um, before I went, my my dad pulled me aside and he's like, yeah, we don't have money for you to go to college. And I was like, yeah, I, I know that. <laughs> I know we don't have any money. I don't care. I'm leaving. Uh, and he's mm-hmm. like, you shouldn't go to college because you can't do it. Um, and I'm like, well, I'm going to do it. And he's like, well, if you're going to bother to go to college, you should go in for like engineering or uh, something like that. Or like, you know, chemistry. Don't go for writing because then you'll like the best you'll ever get is like being a teacher, but probably not even then you'll just end up doing some kind of manual labor job for the rest of your life because nobody wants that. And like, in some ways he's right because for the last nine years, that's what I've been is like a manual laborer. Uh, and I didn't finish school and I never got a degree. And when I got to college, all of my teachers told me like, what you want to do is trash. Um, Cause you wanted, you were like genre fiction oriented in a literary mm-hmm. fiction program, right? Well, I, there, that was the only program there. wasn't like, yeah. if there was well. a pop fiction program, I would have done it. Um, but it, yeah, there was the, that was the orientation of the writing program was towards, you know, be literary and be serious and be important. Yeah, I was just, I don't know. I was just told over and over, like, you can't do this. And on some level, like, I haven't and didn't. And, you know, like, a couple of years ago, while we were doing this podcast, uh, I just, I took all my writing and got rid of it and just made a commitment that I'm not going to do that anymore, really. Um, And so, like... Like when I went to these movies, I or any story, I I don't come to them to be like, okay, I'm gonna enjoy this or like this is for fun. Like it's never just for fun. It was never just for fun. It was always, what can I learn from this? And it was always serious. And I was always like, I've watched literally thousands of movies and read thousands of books and I've reread them 
and I've gone to like philosophers of story and critics. And I mean, I've read everything that I can read about how to write to teach myself how to do these things. It's not like a pastime to me. It was Mm -hmm. everything that I wanted for myself. And so to come back to this and see the rule of two in it is like, I wasted all that time and he was right about me and they were right. I mean, I understand why it feels that way, but I also think that that's completely not true, right? Like, all of that work that you did, like, it's changed who you are as a person, and it and it brought you to, like, our podcasting community and, and like, this relationship and this work that we have, and, like, you know, we're not sponsored by Casper Mattress or anything, but I think <laughs> we have, like, a few thousand people who like to listen to us um, and, like, hopefully are getting something out of it or, like, you know, having it brighten their week in some way or, like, change the way that they're experiencing story. Maybe maybe this is my perspective as, like, someone trying to make it in a field full of type A personalities um, where, like, that's not where my motivation comes from. I'm more, like, just interested in the science um, and feeling like, like, fuck, if I don't get a tenure-track position at an R1 university, then, like, what has it all been for? You know, sometimes it really is about all the friends you made along the way. I don't know. That's all I got. <laughs> <laughs> no, I... I appreciate what you mean. I don't I don't think that I mean like I needed um to be published by a publisher or something like that. I that was something that I was like that's stupid. Um very early on. Even if I I just wrote and um didn't even put it out to anybody like that was okay on some level because I was still working on the craft. It's just like the craft is done, like it's gone. And I didn't invest anything in the ability to like talk about all of this. I think that when we do these podcasts, I'm very confusing to people. Um, I don't think I come across in any kind of straightforward way. Like a lot of the feedback that we get or sometimes your reactions, it will be like, oh, you mean like this? And it's like, that's the opposite of what I mean. Um, (laughs) And so like, and I'm not saying that it's like you or to like any of the feedback that we get. I think it's just because I'm like in my own head with this stuff. I'm not learning this stuff to like talk about it. And like the ability to teach is like an entirely separate skill that is um, something that you have to develop. It's not like the ability to communicate and all of that. It's not intrinsic to like understand it. You can understand something and then be a really shitty teacher and not be able to communicate that to people. Um, yes. Yes. This I am very, very aware of. <laughs> it's You have to learn how to do that stuff. And I never did. And, I, and while I was learning all this stuff, it wasn't like I was like, you know, 
this idea comes from this. I wasn't citing my sources. I was just like, you know, I wasn't an archaeologist. I was a tomb raider. I was going in there and getting the fucking treasure and getting out. Like, I didn't care if it got in a museum and everybody got to understand what it is. Like, mm-hmm. that shit's for me. Um, and so the whole point was to understand how stories work and then do stories, um, not to explain how to do stories to other people. And it's I funny. <laughs> You, you say like the friends we made along the way and it's like I I get what you mean but it's like at the same time like I didn't have any friends because I kept pushing everybody out of my life and a hundred percent just doing this like I would I would watch like seven eight ten movies in a day like I would you know spend like 18 hours just d- doing movies on a day off and like writing notes on it and plotting stuff out and making graphs and like coming up with my own terminology. And I did that for 15 years uh, wow. and pushed people out of my life and read and reread and went back and did it over and saw new things and refined old theories and kept going. And like, I hear people talk about like, this is what my PhD was like. And, and I'm like, yeah, I know what that's like. Like, that's what I did. That's what I'm doing. And while I did all that, at the same time, every day I wrote a thousand words of narrative, not of like, this is my, this is the outline for the story, or this is like backstory for this character or world. I did that stuff too. I did a thousand words of narrative every day. Uh, That was the rule. And if I did 2000 today, that didn't mean that tomorrow I did zero. It meant tomorrow I do a thousand every day. And I didn't make it every day, but I'd say any given year I did about 200,000 words of stories. Oh of my like God. Short stories. And I like, I wrote books. I wrote whole books. I wrote like five books and it's all gone. I got rid of all of that stuff. How do you feel about the fact that it's gone? awful like I feel gone like I do you feel do you feel regret do you wish you hadn't deleted it all I don't know like it's not like that stuff was great it's not like I was gonna that stuff was learning um you know as much as watching these movies and and all of that stuff was it was um practicing your craft and applying theory and seeing if this stuff worked and how it worked and it's one thing to like figure out the rule of two and then you're writing a story and you're like, fuck, this is hard. How do I do two stories, let alone one? Except you see it in TV all the time. Like after I saw the rule of two, I start to see it everywhere. Like that's mm-hmm. how TV works is a story and a B story and they dovetail. And then at the end, yeah, you're like, yeah, you're right. Oh, wow. Yeah. I, that, that 30 minutes really made sense to me and I could tell somebody what happened uh, as opposed to like, you'll watch like a, a Game of Thrones episode and, and be like, what happened? And like, well, I think Cersei did this because they don't resonate with each other. It's not telling the same story over again. It's shit happens over here. Shit happens over there. And then you listen to a podcast and you're like, oh, yeah, that's what happened. I mean, I don't feel good about it. I feel like my uh, life is a waste and that that's, uh, selfish and dramatic. I I mean, I have a family, I have a wife that I love and I love my kids. What's selfish and dramatic? 
to say that my life is a waste. Like oh, how stupid yeah, yeah. is that? Um, <laughs> but it's how I feel. I don't. I don't know that it's true. Um, I mean, okay. If there's one thing that I've learned from movies, it's that having a vibrant inner life is its own value, right? I feel like one of the ways that you can have greater compassion for yourself is to think about what you would tell someone else if they were telling you that story about them. It can be really easy to make value judgments about yourself and say like, well, my life was a waste. But like, it's much harder, I think, to make those value judgments about other people. Like, we're much kinder to other people in general, if we're not narcissists, Um, (laughs) which we're not. Once you start getting into the mindset where everyone has to, like, justify their own existence, that's, like, a kind of dark, shitty place to be. Like, very few people are going to pass that bar. Yeah. I'm not saying your feelings are invalid either. I'm just... It's just a weird thing to, like, go back to this movie and uh, or any story, like, um, but, it, you know, especially this movie, which was one of the... It, it's just a coincidence of when it came out and when I was doing this. It's not... There's not anything special about this yeah. movie where I see, like, the rule of two in it um, or, like, A Knight's Tale where, you know, um, in that movie, like, I realized that you that when you tell a story it's not it should not be literally true it should feel true it has to like yeah feel like what it is it's not about getting the period of medieval europe exactly correct it's how does it feel when you see that person you love and and that's how you make her look it's not you know Like I, it's not just sitting down and like popcorn and wow, that was entertaining. And it had a couple of thrilling moments and wasn't that cool. I get that too. Like that does happen to me, but the way that I come to stories is like for edification, for something bigger that is, you know, touching what stories actually are as, you know, a human endeavor and how they operate and, all of this, you know, bigger philosophical stuff. Isn't the point of stories to make people feel things, right? And so, like, I guess you're trying to, to like, figure out the science for, for different ways that you can make people feel things through narrative. No, that's, a, that's like, a really good definition of what a writer is. Um, it's your job to make people feel things. And you need to figure out, like, what are the tools for that? And that's really how I I look at like all of these narrative rules is not like things aren't good or bad. Like when it comes down to storytelling, like don't do this, but yes, do that. They're like notes on a keyboard. If you're playing in, you know, an F sharp key, you don't want to start playing in a B flat key all of a sudden because people are going to be like, oh, that sounds like shit. You, you can't like use the wrong tool at the wrong moment or it doesn't feel good. And so that's all I'm doing when I'm going through stories is trying to find those tools. Except now, like, why? <laughs> um, and and when, or when I look back at it, I remember like what that felt like to discover it and then to go. And I was like, oh, man, I see this thing. Is this real? I'm going to go back through every movie that I've watched and look for this. And I was so excited to do that. And then I was so excited to write something to use that new tool 
and see if I could, you know, get it right. And now like, I mean, I think I texted you something like, it feels like, you know, looking through a photo album and like, oh, there's my ex or like, you know, having dinner with them or something and, and going like, this feels awful to remember all of the good times because like now it's not good. Now it's bad. Yeah. That's like how it's kind of been. I think it's an important part of um, criticism and, you know, what's going on with stories is like your personal emotional experience of them. And like, that's part of what this show is. And part of why the show does not come out as regularly as I otherwise would want it to, because like, it makes me sad. Yeah. And now I'm going to load this gun and, uh, no. <laughs> Only if it's a beloved, uh, antique <laughs> that's been passed through the generations. Right. Should we talk about the ending of it? That throughout the whole movie, as they're like chasing this gun, which to be fair, I think it's not actually a MacGuffin. Like, I think it has enough specificity and mythology surrounding it that it wouldn't be fair. Oh, that's funny. To call this... it, I don't know. <laughs> what do you think? I mean, I would call it a MacGuffin just uh, mechanically, but that's like a debate that um, Star Wars fans get into all the time about R2-D2. Oh, um, really? Or or um, BB-8. It would be like, that's not a MacGuffin. That's R2-D2. You have some goddamn respect. Like... <laughs> That gun is sacred and important and has a character and a story all of its own. And it's haunted and yeah. (laughs) But right. So for most of the movie, you think that this mobster basically just wants it because it's like a shiny item and valuable and, um, you know, like famous. And then at the end of the movie, you find out that the reason why he wants it is because after he got into this car accident and the police found the person tied up in his trunk and sent him to jail for five years, one of his like cellmates in prison was, it was like the grandson or great, great grandson of the gunsmith. And he like, didn't make it out of prison alive. And so the mobster's quest to get the gun is actually to give it to the family, the descendants of the family who made it as like a very like personal, emotional gesture of gratitude mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, rather than just like wanting something for the money. Yeah. It's honorable. Um, yeah. And even uh, Margulies, who is like the, the leader of the mafia who was in jail, um, played by Gene Hackman. Margulies is even getting out of um, the criminal lifestyle because of this entire experience that he had with this young man and this gun. And like, this is like the last thing that he's going to do. Just like Jerry's last job, this is Margulies' last job. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he's going to like go straight. Meanwhile, like that's contrasted with Bernie Naiman the money guy, all of his motivations are what you thought the other mobsters motivations were. He's the alpha male in the movie. He's the guy Mm -hmm. like sex and travel. When he goes to Mexico, he doesn't get the Mexican car. He gets the, you know, the regular American car. And yeah, uh, I love that three beat of like (laughs) Jerry going down, getting the El Camino. And then, um, the other guy Mm -hmm. going down and like, do, 
doing the same thing, yeah. yeah. And then finally he goes down and, and doesn't know to ask for the right car. Yeah, because he doesn't care, right? He's just there to do business. He's just, uh, it's its all business to him. And it's all money. And that's the only reason he's there. And he doesn't care about the girl. He doesn't care about Jerry. He just cares about money. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's why the gun, like, she is in love and it's real love. And so the gun fires and shoots him and the curse is, like, lifted and and I think the story is like literally killing the alpha male. It's like really saying something about masculinity in that mm-hmm. moment. I think it's like, you know, down with these alpha males, you have this other guy who's doing the right thing because of honor, not to like inflict his will on the world, but to like restore the world to some kind of justice, um, mm-hmm. to, to let things be the way that they should be, not the way that he wants them to be, you know, a happy ending for Jerry, the Omega male, who, you know, just goes off into the sunset with his girl in a very imperfect relationship that is probably always going to be dysfunctional. <sighs> yes, yes. No, so I I love the way they, like, wrapped up all the storylines with the gun and, like, it totally resonates thematically, except that their relationship sucks. Yeah. And it's supposed to be funny and it's just sad. <laughs> it is sad, isn't it? Yeah, it's supposed to be cute. And it's like, it's like the big slap, slap, kiss, kiss. And it's like, no, it's this is bad. Okay, except slap, slap, kiss, kiss can be like hot in the right circumstances. Mm-hmm. It's not hot enough, that's for sure. Which is weird, right? <laughs> because you would think it, it would be at least, you know, these are two beautiful people. You can't just like figure that out. I wonder too, if it's just because we're older. Like, we're married. I mean, we're not married, but, like, we're both married. Not to each other, but we are married separately to other people. Yeah. Right. And it's like, yeah, get your shit together, children. Um, That does remind me, though. I have watched I mean, this. T- okay, but I never was in a relationship that bad. <laughs> I've, I don't know. Maybe I just got lucky. Has like, anybody been? I'm sure If someone have. makes you miserable, don't date them. <laughs> Crazy. What are you talking about? <laughs> really important relationship advice. (laughs) So I should say last time we we talked, I talked about how this movie, like I watched it with romantic partners and it was bad. It was bad, bad, bad. Maybe I should talk about that now. So, you know, I'm watching movies and I'm not watching them for like shove popcorn in my mouth and wasn't that fun for an hour and a half or whatever. Um, and at this point when I'm doing this, I'm so obnoxious. I can't believe anybody put up with me at all. Like I'm obnoxious now, but back then, like, as you may know, film studies say that, oh, no, 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 no. And it's like, what are they saying in the movie? I can't hear the movie over you, Alan. And it would be like, please, can we just watch a movie that I like instead of this movie where you talk constantly? And I was like, oh, well, there's this movie with Julia Roberts. Perfect. I love romantic comedies. And then we put in the Mexican and they're like, what is this? They're like in a car chase and he kidnapped her. And now this the nice gay guy got shot. Who's the postman? I don't like this. Is make me sad. I don't like this. This is scary. And so, yeah. That happened a lot where it would seem like, well, this is going to be a romantic comedy, right? It's got Brad Pitt. It's got Julia Roberts. That's all those people did before this, you know, Mm -hmm. except for a handful of things. 
And it's not that at all. And the advertisements for it are like, that's what this is. Because they, they want I mean, to make there money. are a lot of like slapstick fun moments. Mm-hmm. But it's, yeah, it's like very interspersed with like darkness and violence. Yeah. And they're like darkly ironically funny. Like the weird dog and the... You know, like the guy getting shot in the head because they're shooting bullets up in the air. And like, isn't this hilarious? How like, oh, no. And now his car is stolen. Ha 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 ha. And it's like, no, that's scary and bad. And what if I was him? I would cry. (laughs) Which, since you brought this up, um, I cannot see that guy's face without just thinking of Mr. Universe. I feel like (laughs) his job in movies is to like show up as like a very intense, weird side character and then get murdered. Yeah, I think that every time. If you're going to get typecast, that's not a bad way to get typecast. (laughs) I was watching it this time and Christina looked up when that guy got on screen and he's like drinking whatever. And she looks me right in the eye and she goes, he stabbed me with a sword, Mal. Isn't that (laughs) weird? Like, yeah, that's why I'm in love with you. How weird is that? (laughs) So I can watch it with Christina because she's a cool person. But in the past... Uh, this has been a bad, bad experience. Because well, like I said, I think it's all just a matter of making sure everyone has the right expectations. Which I was not doing because I just wanted to yeah. watch it again to study it more. And uh, I was a bad boyfriend. Yeah, you needed to like set them up right. Sorry, you're you you brought up the the gay post worker again and like him getting murdered and it just um. I don't know. I I don't have like a full and complete thought on this. The idea of like homosexuality as a shortcut to vulnerability, I find interesting. Mm-hmm. Cause I don't it would I don't think it would have worked in quite the same way if it had been like a female lover of his that got murdered. Oh, definitely not. Yeah, there's something tragic, right? Yeah, I guess it's like, I mean, it's a shortcut, but I don't think it's necessarily like a cheap shortcut because there is something like really meaningful about having to be closeted and closed off to like romantic love and then finally open yourself up to something like that and to like let go and be vulnerable with another person and like expose that part of yourself and then have it all get ripped away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, because, like, following in love for anybody is vulnerable, but, like, in a same-sex or queer context, it's an extra level of vulnerability on top of that. And it can literally be dangerous. Yeah. Well, and <laughs> that's... Oh, that's, like, the other thing, right, is that, like, there's, like, a whole history of, like, the gay panic murder defense um and just like and gay people just being like on the margins of society and people not caring if they get murdered it also like made thinking about um his death like resonate a little bit differently because like he was like a gay man hitchhiking across the u.s and then like met someone had this like amazing romantic connection and then ended up dead because of it even though like his murder was just being in the wrong place at the wrong time. It made me feel things, which is really yeah. what I'm looking for in my experiences of movies. It, it kind of inverts the hitchhiker trope. Um, you know, 
like usually that's the murderer who like gets oh yeah yeah (laughs) but he's the victim but then at the same time it also kind of falls into the kill your gaze trope which was not totally a trope at this time but is part of like when it was galvanized i i feel like the aids crisis created this like idea in the minds of straight people writing gay characters and then their partner died because it was so sad and you know that was part of the gay experience going through the aids crisis and was you know core to some of the identity of and and then so straight people were like to write a gay story one of them dies got it yeah and it's like no that's not no, that's not the thing. Ooh, I didn't even think about that. But yeah, you're right. It is. It definitely is the barrier gaze trope. It's as good as you can do that, I think, in this context for supporting characters. It's, you know, the story's not about that. And it definitely does happen. He doesn't die because he's gay. It's wrong person, you know, wrong place, wrong time. Yeah. And I guess a lot of people in this movie just die randomly. So yeah. So it's not yeah. like he's singled out as like a lesson. Right. Yeah. And then, but then there's vengeance for it too. Right. Yeah, that's true. I don't know. But then that's, but then does that make it frigging if it's being used to motivate the other character? Yeah, I don't know. See, it's complicated, right? That's But there's, I I feel like all that, I feel like Samantha's story is crunchier than jerry's story overall and it's all of this stuff that you're talking about is mm-hmm. a big reason why yeah i feel like this movie's really good it's just not it's just not great and it's weird right like it's goodness is like in all these weird places because it has like an amazing cast which elevates it in a lot of ways but then it's like the writing is really good in spots it's just like something about the whole thing doesn't gel i think it really is just like that first half hour it's not clear where it's going and so the viewer is like anxious and and like can't really enjoy it because you're trying to figure out like what is the genre what is my relationship to these characters like we're spending a lot of time with julia roberts but it seems like we're not going to see her again um (laughs) right because they're breaking up and he's going to mexico like, I don't know how I would fix that, but I think it is just that it it starts out with the viewer feeling, like, disconnected from it. And so that kind of, like, ruins the experience of the whole thing. No, it does set you up poorly. That's uh, really smart. There are so many good moments, good little moments. I'm, my favorite thing, honestly, is probably, like, the El Camino stuff and the dog and the don't shoot me uh, in the foot why do you have to do this? I love yeah. that whole scene. <laughs> it's a funny thing. There's um, the car salesman in this is uh, the bad guy. The main he's not even the bad guy. He's kind of like, you know, Spike from Buffy. But in this other show called Timeless, he's like the bad guy who turns into a good guy and the forbidden kind of badass love of the main character. Mm-hmm. Um and so when I saw the sales guy this time, I was like, oh, my God, that's him. All set, Mr. Wellback. If you go to the front there, a shuttle will pick you up and take you to your car. Okay, what kind of car is it exactly? It's a Chrysler. Brand new, sir. Mm-hmm. Is there a problem, Mr. Wellback? Well, you know, it's my first trip to Mexico and, uh, oh, Chrysler. 
I mean, I drive a Chrysler in America. You know, I was, I was thinking maybe you might have something a little more authentic, a, a little more... Mexican? Yeah, yeah, you know, get into the spirit. Your first time? Yeah. Wow, exciting. Hello, Espanol, Señor Wambach. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. Claro que no. Let me ask you look what happened. This is called Speedy Gonzalez, man. Yeah, Speedy Gonzalez. Let's see what we can do for you. Oh, I think I have just a thing. How would you like an El Camino? Ooh, I like that. That's good. Yeah. Yo creo que te vas a meter una bronca grande aquí, señor. Raúl! And he, it even could be the same guy because it's like a time travel story. Now I'm the head canning. I'm, I need to write some cross fiction fanfic now. Where it is <laughs> About the Mexican and timeless. <laughs> and no one's written that, I'll guarantee you. <laughs> oh, that would be amazing. Yeah, there's all these little scenes that I like in there. I don't know if the movie hangs together in any kind of great way. This movie's not a classic or anything, but I learned a lot from the movie. So that's all for this episode. We're going to be recording more His Dark Materials stuff coming up soon. We're going to be covering uh, the second book, The Subtle Knife. Um, so we're not entirely sure when our next episode of Hallowed Ground Storycast is going to be, but it shouldn't be too far in the foreseeable future. Um, and our next episode is going to be about uh, another one of my favorite movies from my high school years, Monsoon Wedding, um, which is another Indian wedding movie, but this time it's in actual India and not India expat Britain. I honestly, it's been over 10 years since I've seen it, but it's so good. I just, I really loved it. Have you ever heard of it, seen it? I think I've heard of it. Um, I've definitely not seen it. I think it is like a straight up foreign film, right? Is it uh, is it in English? Yeah. Is it a Bollywood? Um, so it came out in 2001. It depicts a traditional Punjabi Hindu wedding in Delhi. Written by Sabrina Dawan, she wrote the first draft of the screenplay in one week while she was at Columbia University's MFA film program. Okay, so it is an international co-production um, with companies in India, the U.S., Italy, France, and Germany. Interesting. IndieWire named it the best romance of the 21st century in 2017. It seems presumptuous. I know. I'm actually kind of shocked, despite the fact that it is one of my favorite movies. <laughs> Less than two decades into the century. You know what? We're going to call it. This yeah. is what it is. I'm interested in something that has like some kind of international crossover flavor to it. Um, yeah. 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 I mean, it's definitely not a Bollywood movie in the sense that there's like... Music it doesn't, or yeah. yeah. There's not like the traditional dance numbers or anything. Don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts if you like what we do. And this week we have a thank you haiku for Kelly, who is at Glazebrook Girl on Twitter. Loving guardian from the land of the charmers. Ally from the start. Thanks again, Kelly, for being there for us. If you would like a haiku written for you, uh, just leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcast. I'm Anya, and you can follow me on Twitter at Strangely Literal. That's Strangely, then L-I-T-E-R-L. I'm Alan, and you can follow the show on Twitter at HG Storycast, and visit our website at HGStoryCast.com. 
If you'd like to leave us feedback, you can visit hgstorycast.com contact or send an email to contact at halloweddgroundmedia.com. Yeah, speaking of pantsing, I wrote my first work of fiction. Oh, good for you. Um, That's since, cool. like, high school. I can't decide if I'm a pantser or a plotter. I'm like... I, it's usually okay. a spectrum. Yeah. I think I'm a plotter, and also I, like, can't not write in order. Like, I can't skip around. I have to know, like, everything that's happened mm-hmm. up to where I'm writing. So that was kind of annoying. A linear plotter. Yeah. I'm like. A I'm a non-linear pantser. I cannot write in order. It's okay. Here's the thing, though. It makes me so mad that I am a plotter because that is like a linear plotter is not my personality type at all. And it like (laughs) frustrates me that that's how I write because I feel like it shouldn't be. I should be like a chaotic ass pantser. Like I. That's funny that you say, I've never actually thought about that. Cause the, like I am the other side of that coin too, or like, like that's how I write is like out of order. And I like, I will like, I don't even know what this scene is and why is that guy dead? And who is she? I've never <laughs> met her, but like all of that stuff fits into place once all the pieces are filled in. And I don't know how, like it doesn't make any sense. But then in my real life, I'm like, when we went to like Disney, I had every minute of our day like planned out. Like we we have to hurry up, you guys. We got reservations at the restaurant at this time. Blah, 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 blah. You know, like. Um, I don't know. Or maybe once I practice writing more, I'll like be able to pants. I'll like be able to let go. I have this thing that is like my main, my only law. I'm like Batman. I have one rule that there are no rules to storytelling. There are only rules to the story you are telling. Like every, every story is like, you think you get it figured out and then you go to write another story and you're like, fuck, how how did I do this? (laughs) Because like (laughs) the next one is different. Man. Okay. Hallowed Ground Storycast is a Hallowed Ground media production and is produced under a Creative Commons non-commercial share alike license.